Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Ash Gardner is an incredibly impressive athlete and woman. She's a star of the Australian women's cricket team and the Sydney Sixers in the WBBL. Her love of cricket started in the typical Aussie way, in the backyard playing with her brother. But her rise to the top of her sport has been anything but typical. Ash is a proud Murawari woman and just the second Aboriginal woman to represent Australia. That came almost 60 years after the first, Faith Thomas in the 50s. Ash has become a powerful voice for her sport and her people, using her platform to educate and influence all Australians about our First Nations history and culture. Ash is determined to make sure there isn't another 60-year gap before the next Indigenous woman represents Australia. She's passionate about closing the gap more broadly and has formed her own foundation to inspire and empower the next generation, not just in sport, but education and the arts as well. But long before she was pulling on the baggy green for Australia, she was spending her childhood playing in the backyard with her older brother, Aaron. I guess like a lot of Aussie kids, I was out playing sport at any opportunity and um, thanks to my parents for giving me that opportunity to play the number of sports that I did. I pretty much wanted to be like Aaron. I was doing everything he was doing. Um, I was a massive tomboy growing up, so I was playing (laughs) rugby league and obviously fell into the sport cricket because of my dad as well. He um, Mm -hmm. still actually plays to this day, which is um, quite remarkable. But Who does he play for? He just plays in like a local um, last man stands comp, but at his age, it's pretty impressive. So um, props to him. But yeah, I guess like a lot of Aussie kids, yeah, I just wanted to be outside and, and playing sport and whether that was yeah cricket or athletics or rugby league. Um, we were also doing motorbike riding at the time too, which was pretty cool. <laughs> cool. Um, not a lot of kids were able to do that. So yeah, um, we had a pretty um, cool upbringing. And you grew up in Sydney? Whereabouts in Sydney? I grew up in Sydney, yeah, um, in Picnic Point in the mm-hmm. Bankstown area. Mm-hmm. I actually lived right next door to my primary school, so it was very easy, easy to go to school. <laughs> you, you, you could wake up late and then get there right on time. Yeah, I had a great childhood and um, went to two really good schools as well. You couldn't say that you left your homework at home because they'd be like, well, just go get it. Yeah, or the dog ate it because we didn't have a dog when yeah. I was growing up either. So. <laughs> so was it just you and your brother Aaron as the two kids? Yeah, How yeah, much just, older was he? Uh, he's three years older. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because I hear you talk about you being a cliche story of how you got into cricket in being in the backyard with your brother. Pretty much, yeah. We had some ferocious um, battles in the backyard. I still remember clear as day. One afternoon, it was a typical Sydney Arvo in in the summer. It was like 40 degrees and um, (laughs) I happened to be bowling, which I was doing every single time. And um, Aaron ended up scoring, I think, like 150 in the backyard. And um, so I was out there bowling for about two hours at him. He was having the time of his life and I was not enjoying it at all. Um, And then I happened to get him out eventually. And then I ended up getting out first ball, but you couldn't get out first Uh ball, of course. And then I ended up, yeah, probably batting for another three balls. And then I just packed up my things and (laughs) went inside because I was definitely over it. But um, I guess they're the fond memories that you look back Mm. on when you're you're young, whether you like it or not. But it's, yes, it's such a great memory that I've had um, growing up with Aaron because, yeah, like like I said, we were so competitive as well. So the backyard, it was like the ashes out there every time. So um, (laughs) there was everything on the line, which is, I guess, really exciting. But, um, yeah, it's something to look back on that I... um, a memory that I love. The best battles, aren't they? You mentioned that you played so many sports, rugby league included. Why was it that cricket was something that you gravitated towards? Well, it kind of came back to, so I basically stopped playing most other sports um, apart from playing in in mm-hmm. school stuff 
when I was about 12 or 13 and it was athletics and cricket at the time and it literally came back to athletics or little athletics was on a Friday Arvo and so was um, rep cricket training Mm. Um, and I was like well there's probably more of a future in cricket and it was probably I guess something I was better at and probably Mm. enjoyed more so that's pretty much how I quit athletics and just focused on cricket so pretty much from say 14, 15 outside of school stuff cricket was the only sport I was playing and um, I guess it allowed me to devote all my time to to the one sport and to, I guess, keep progressing um, in that chosen sport too. So you could see a pathway when you were 14, 15 that you could play this professionally? Once I realised there was an Australian women's team. When did that happen? (laughs) When I was about 14 and Mm. I guess that's quite astonishing, isn't it? Like to think Mm. back, um, that's only eight eight or nine years ago Mm. um, and I didn't even realise that there was an Australian women's team who Mm. up until that time had still been really successful and um, I guess that just shows the media coverage that they were getting was um, very minimal and I guess from that onwards when I started to represent my state in in underage tournaments, that's when I kind of realised that there was um, that opportunity to potentially have a career in um, career one day and I guess that's when um, I started to put my head down a little bit more um, and just work a little bit harder to, I guess, achieve those goals. Do you remember when you first saw the Australian women's cricket team? Was it in the paper? Or was it on the news? Where was it? Um, it was at, we were um, at like an under-15s tournament mm. and a couple of Australian players came to the tournament. And I was like, oh, who are these people? Because I didn't know them wow. at all. Mm. Um, and then someone was like, oh, these players play for Australia. And it's quite funny because now I go and do those appearances <laughs> and, it's, and kids kind of know you and kind of don't know mm. you. But that was probably the first time I realised and they were some of the best players that were in the Australian. Um, Leah Poulton was one of them mm-hmm. who still coaches at Cricket New South Wales now and um, she's definitely been someone that I've looked up to probably off mm-hmm. the field as well. Um, she's been someone that's pushed me along the way to to keep me in line. But, <laughs> yeah, there was numerous players and I was just like, wow, I don't even know who you are and that's, that's quite sad being another mm. female athlete. So when you were growing up, if you didn't weren't exposed to female cricketers, who was it that you idolised? Was it even in cricket? Did you idolise some cricketers or Australian sports, women or men? Um, Andrew Simons was um, <laughs> a cricketer that I wanted to be like. Why? Um, I just think because cool, he was different. Yeah. yeah, I think he he was just cool. Like yeah. you said, he had dreads. Um, mm. He wore zinc. He was just different to everyone else, and I think that's what drew me um, to liking him and. Just, I guess, the way that he played cricket, he was really attacking and just wanted to take Mm. the game on. And um, I guess that's kind of been something that I've taken um, into my career is Mm. just trying to take the game on and to to not leave anything behind. But from a female sporting perspective, I guess Kathy Freeman was Mm. um, someone probably later in my life that I've um, looked up to, Um, obviously being both from Aboriginal um, Mm. backgrounds, from that perspective, from more of a personal perspective, to look up to her and just to know what she went through to, I guess, be as successful as she was. Um, I know when I recently watched um, her doco, that was quite eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And um, even though I knew she won the race, I was still really nervous watching her. Um, <laughs> and I guess that's so awesome that she had so many people behind her but um, had such a hard, I guess, route to actually get to mm. um, where she ended up. So you are pretty good then from the get-go with cricket? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess there was talent there, yes. Um I was pretty fortunate to to be involved in um, underage squads from quite a young age. Mm. They had um, this thing called Emerging Breakers, which was like um, from, I think it was under 13s. They, I guess, got this pool of talent um, and then kept them in these squads, like these train-on squads. Mm. And 
Um, I actually made my first one when I was nine, when wow. I was in the under 13. So, wow. so yes, is that it's a long time ago? <laughs> um, I guess yeah, there there was potential that they that they did see, and yeah, that's I guess the most exciting thing when you look back, and even when I look now at younger younger players, there's such a great pathway for them to to go through to um, reach the elite level. I've heard you people talk about you and talking about the fact that you were natural. You were just a natural at cricket. You didn't have to work hard initially because um, you were so, you found it so easy. How did that then, because things were happening so easily for you, how did that shape your progression and your attitude towards the game when you're a natural, so they say? Yeah, um, I guess, yeah, some people are naturally talented in chosen sports and um, luckily for me, I was probably up until, I don't know, probably I was about 16 or 17 when mm. I first ever got into the Opens um, New South Wales Breakers side and I was pretty out of my depths in in that squad with so many Australian players and probably for the first two or three seasons in that squad, um, I wasn't really getting a go and I was like, okay, something needs to change for mm. me to start getting the opportunity to play and um it was probably my attitude that needed to change and now that I look back, I realise that talent can only get you so far and um, mm. there actually needs to, be, I guess, become a time where you actually need to start working hard and that was something that I just relied on was, yeah, like I'm a really good cricketer and that's going to get me to places but mm. the fact is it's not and you need to, there's so many other elements to sport that make you a better athlete and mm. um, that came back to getting fitter, getting stronger, I guess being more resilient because Cricket's a cricket's a funny game where you have more bad days than good and mm. um, it can really get you down. But just having that resilience was something that I probably needed to learn, which I think comes with maturity. And that's mm. probably another thing that I needed to do was mature um, mm. because I was pretty immature at the time. And um, you probably Understandable ask, when you, you, well, when you're you, young, yeah. You're progressing so quickly too. You're still quite young compared to everyone else who's categorised as elite. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that just comes with age. You mature um, mm. both on and off the field. And I know if you ask the teammates that I was playing with at the time, um, they would all tell you that I was very immature and I had a lot of growing to do. But I guess, yeah, that just comes with sport and um, comes with you as a person. You mm. you, you end up maturing um, at some point and that's probably the light that flicked was when I started to mature. That's when I knew that hard work was something that I really needed to start doing. Was there a point where that happened? Did something happen where you were like, all right, well, I need to really grow up because, or uh, that sounds a bit harsh, but um, I, I need to, I need to change the way I'm doing things because did you miss out on a team or were you elevated to a position or can you pinpoint a moment when you thought far out, I need to change? It probably came, funnily enough, when I first ever made the Australian side, getting into that team was really daunting and it was something that obviously every kid dreams of is to play in it or for Australia mm. in, in whatever sport they choose. But when I got into that squad, I, I also felt really out of my depths in there too. I was like, okay, I've had a pretty good season in the WBBL and that's obviously granted me this opportunity to mm. play for Australia. But I just really felt like I was out of sorts in that side. I just mm. didn't feel like I was good enough to be there and I, and I kind of had to realise why don't I feel good? And it's probably just because I was still leaning on my talents and um, mm. still probably not working hard enough. And that was, I debuted when I was 20. So I was still mm. really young um, to play for my country. And I guess probably, yeah, ever since then, probably over more recently over the past two seasons, that's where I've really tried to focus on strength and um, running. And um, I guess that's kind of improved my game a little bit. It helps when you're a little bit fitter, mm. when you can stay out there a little bit longer and concentrate for longer and 
just make things more consistent because in cricket um, consistency is key and it's mm. something very hard to do because you look at some of the world's best players and they're still quite inconsistent at times and um, hmm. I guess that's the, the wave you have to ride when you play cricket is mm. there's a lot of ebbs and flows but the good days keep you in and the and the bad days can bring you down but you just got to think of the good times and um, just try and reflect back on that. Well, take me back to your debut. You told us how you felt at the time and, you know, finding it overwhelming and, and daunting. How did it pan out for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, my T20 debut for Australia was a day to remember, but also to forget. It was um, quite a whirlwind day. I, I remember the days leading up to it. The coach, um, Matthew Mott, said to me, you'll be batting three. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, all right. My first ever game for Australia and I'm batting three. Wow. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. And I, I don't know. I think he just wanted to, to keep things as natural as possible. Mm-hmm. I was batting three for the Sydney Sixers, which is, I guess, what earned me my spot in the Australian side. And I was just way too nervous and you could tell mm. I um, ended up getting run out for a dark. I was just I was just way out of my league and I just was like, wow, okay, this is the Australian level, the international level is such a big step up yeah. from state cricket and it's not something you realise until you're there. And then luckily my ODI debut, um, which was in the same series, was a little bit better and <laughs> um, I got off to a bit better start. So um, they're definitely memories that I look mm. back on fondly, but also, um, yeah, wish I could have debuted a little bit better. How did it pan out after that? Because you said that was a bit of a wake-up call, um, so to speak. So, you know, how did how did you go after that? I don't know, to be honest. It's like all of it kind of blows into one with the cricket mm. season because there's so much cricket going on. But I think my cricket holistically has been pretty inconsistent and um, it's so frustrating because you you obviously want to keep your spot in that Australian mm. team and because it's been so successful, it's it's such a hard team to stay in. And I guess that's the, the great thing about it mm. is there's so many great players around me that are in that side and it's a team that I love playing for, but you know, you, I guess your spot's never cemented mm. um, unless you keep performing. So that's something that I don't know, probably over the past two years is where I've lacked a little bit. And I know talking to coaches and stuff, I know kind of where I'm going wrong or not so much wrong to to highlight the negatives, mm. but what I can work on. And I guess, yeah, I've tried to do that as, as best as possible, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. And um, cricket's a funny game. Mm. Things can change very quickly. You can have a really good day and then follow it with a really bad day. So, um, yeah, it just comes back to being resilient and just trying to stay more consistent, I guess. You were the second female Indigenous player to represent Australia in cricket, but that came some 60 years after Faith Thomas, who was the female sporting pioneer for Australian sport since she played 60-something years, so much time. Did you feel that pressure of being, of having that, that label or that, that pressure on, on you at the time? Did that add to your debut? At the time, no. I probably more feel that pressure now where I've got more of a platform and probably more people know my name. And um, Did you understand the significance of your debut at the time or it's only I in did. retrospect? Yeah, I, I definitely did and it's something that um, 
I'm obviously super proud of and having the chance to meet Faith a couple of times has been an absolute honour. She's a character and (laughs) I guess just to hear her story and how she had to go through things to play for her country Mm. compared to the luxuries that I get now, obviously it's very different times. But um, Could you imagine 60 years ago? No, not at all. Um, Having to get on boats to play for your country and, and taking so much time just to get over there to play and I don't think she ended up playing too many games because of she was a nurse at the time, so she had to stop nursing to play for Australia and mm. just all these other different things that she had to go through. And, yeah, it's an absolute honour to be the second ever um, Indigenous female cricketer. It's um, something that I'll cherish forever mm. and it's it's something that I'm obviously very proud of and not only myself but my family and the, and the culture because there has been very few numbers, male and female, to mm. represent Australia in cricket. So, yeah, it's, it's something I'm certainly proud of. Let's talk about that. Why? Why have there been so few Indigenous players to represent Australia? I guess I can just probably nail it down to accessibility to um, equipment. Cricket isn't the cheapest sport out there and mm. um, cricket equipment's quite expensive. So it's not accessible for, for people that live re- remotely or don't have much money. And I think young Indigenous kids are probably more inclined to pick up a footy and and chuck on a pair of boots or not even wear boots, just kick the footy around Mm. barefoot. And it's something that um, a lot of Indigenous kids are naturally athletic and um, they can run. And I guess that's really suited to playing football, whether that's AFL or NRL. You see the numbers um, in those two sports, it's really high and that's fantastic. And I think there just hasn't been that role model for for young Indigenous kids Mm. within the space of cricket for them to look up to, to want to be like someone because um, there's always been that role model in AFL and NNRL mm. for those kids to look up to so they want to be those those players where I think in cricket they haven't had someone to want to be like and mm. that's really sad and I think that's changing which is really exciting. Mm. There's a really good pathway for, for young Indigenous cricketers to go through and um, there's been more funding put into cricket which is really exciting and it was awesome this year to have four other Indigenous players in the WBBL and that's slowly growing, but um, I think there's still a long way to go, which is exciting in that regard because there is so much potential there and there's so much talent that hasn't been tapped into yet, which is, um, yeah, awesome to see. Is much being done to close that particular gap in cricket? Yes and no. I Mm. feel there probably could be more funding put into it. I know it's an area that Cricket Australia are wanting to improve. I know they're trying to do things from a cultural perspective and from a racial perspective to, I guess, eliminate that stuff and Mm. and to to really make those messages really positive ones. But from a perspective of them playing more cricket or there being more Indigenous cricketers playing, I just think the funding is is the main thing because Mm. a lot of people can't afford to to drive their kids to the city to play or to buy their kids equipment and um, if that funding was able to happen in, um, I guess, high-populated Aboriginal communities within Australia to get those people the equipment and um, access to those things, that's probably when we'll start to see numbers increase. Mm. Um, They are increasing slowly, which is a great thing and I know Cricket Australia is trying to do their best but it's Mm. it's quite a hard thing to to get across sometimes when people just don't want to do it or um, those people aren't interested in in playing cricket. So Mm. each to their own and um, I know one day hopefully that there'll be plenty more people playing at an elite level. You talked about the impact that having Indigenous role models playing the game at an elite level can have on on the grassroots and those little girls and boys who uh, love cricket but if they can't see themselves at that elite level then 
that makes an impact on whether they they continue in the game. You now have a platform and a profile um, in what you're doing. You are the role model for a lot of little girls and Indigenous little girls out there. You're the goal. You're the ideal for them. How does that responsibility sit with you? I guess it's something that I don't think of, but it's always at the back of your head that you are a a role model Mm. and playing sport at an elite level, it kind of happens naturally. And whether you know it or not, there's always probably going to be one kid that that looks up to you. And I guess it's it's a privilege. Like you, it's Mm. it's awesome to see young kids coming up to you or like you're my favorite player or (laughs) etc. And like that's quite heartwarming. Like Mm. it's um I know as a kid, something that I never thought I would be was a role model. And I think it's really important for myself and for other um, Indigenous cricketers to be positive role models and to always be putting out those positive messages and always be seen doing the right thing both Mm. on and off the field because you want to have a positive impact on those kids. And that's something that I always try to say to them or to to other um, players is just to do your best and just to enjoy it. Because if young kids are seeing you enjoying your sport and you're smiling and Mm. stuff like that, that's going to rub off on them and they're going to be like, oh, like she always looks happy or he always looks happy and he looks like he's really enjoying the sport. And generally when you are enjoying it and you're happy, that's when you're playing your best. And I feel like when you're in form and and when you're playing really good cricket, that's when people are more drawn to interact with Mm. you or to want to follow you because you're a good cricketer or you're a good sports person. So Mm. I think the better athlete you are, that naturally draws people in to you as well. And um, that's something that obviously I try and do is try and be the best cricketer that I can. And some days it, it works and some days it doesn't because that's sport. But outside of that, just trying to be a really positive role model for those kids um, to look up to. Can you tell us more about growing up and your Indigenous heritage? And in particular, what was your relationship like with your culture and your heritage when you were growing up? Well, from a young age, mum told Aaron and I that we had Aboriginal background and it was something that she was really proud of to tell us. But in saying that, unfortunately, um, my mum was disconnected from her culture. She was brought up in a foster home. She, Her parents or her mum died five days after she was born. Mm-hmm. So she was basically taken straight out of her culture and um, brought up in a white family. So it was quite challenging for her. And um, I guess growing up for me, I only knew as much as what she did or as much as she would tell me. So it's been a learning journey um, thus far and mm. there's still so much to learn and I guess that's so exciting and I know it's something probably over the past 12 months that's something that I've really tried to delve into and I really want to learn more for myself but also to be able to educate other people because mm. um, I think that's the most important thing within Australia is we need to educate people mm. on the First Nations and I think people forget that and sometimes people say things that they probably don't mean and there's no malice behind it, but can it can actually have an effect on those people. And um, and I think that just comes back to a lack of education. Mm. And I know from a cricketing point of view, it's something that Cricket Australia has really tried to do is educate their players. And I know more, more recently when I um, was on the New Zealand tour, we as a leadership group, they came to me and um, basically said, look, we want to learn more about your culture and um, more about your people. And I was like, great, like this is this is so exciting and this is something that I really want to be involved in. And I set up our first type of educational session with mm. um, one of my aunties, Auntie Doris, who um, has a wealth of knowledge. Like she just, she knows so many things and it was awesome to just jump on that Zoom call and just listen to her, I guess, tell her story mm. and from her perspective of how she grew up and 
how things have changed and how things haven't changed as well. And it was just awesome to have that personal connection um, to her telling those stories. And I know a lot of the girls learn a lot and the staff Mm. members, um, and so did I. And I guess that's the most exciting thing is it creates a conversation and that's what we we want out Mm. of it is for people to be talking about it um, in a positive manner and just to ask questions because I think that's what people get most nervous about is if they ask a question wrong or mm. if they um, hurt someone asking the question. But um, if it's genuinely not racist or you don't think it's a racist question, like ask it because that's mm. how you're going to learn. And that's the most exciting thing is people are willing to learn. And, yeah, hopefully while I'm learning, I can also then educate people as well. You also, on top of that Zoom call with Annie Doris, also um, invited an Indigenous elder to come to your your team to you threw boomerangs. You spoke to the to to the squad as well. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, that was a few years ago um, for the New South Wales Breakers. Joe Broadbent, who was the head coach at the time, said to me, "Oh, I would love to do a culture session. Can you try and organise something?" I said, "Okay, I'll go back to my mum and ask if she what ideas she thought." And she mm. said, "Why don't you do boomerang throwing? Like it's something that." is kind of related to what you do in cricket. You throw the ball. Um, it's obviously very different. And we had an elder come out and he obviously taught us the way properly to throw it. And it was just to see how much fun the girls were having doing something that was so personal to me was mm. like really special and um, something that I'll always remember. And everyone still talks about it now. Like, do you remember that that session yeah, that we cool. did? And I'm like, it was so much fun, wasn't it? Like, mind you, it was pretty dangerous. Yeah. Like there was... <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was, but at one point there was about 13 players and we all threw them at the one time and we're all ducking <laughs> and Lisa, there was Lisa just, <laughs> well, probably was her. And I was just like, that's a really bad idea, but it was funny. Like at the time, yeah. no one got their head chopped off. So that, that, that was good. But um, yeah, it was just something to look back on. Like it was such a good time and it yeah, was, um, yeah, so personal to me and it was, yeah, really special. Who threw it best? I mean... I can't remember. I have to say myself, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> That's allowed. That's okay. Can you remember a particular point in your life where I guess your pride in your heritage and your culture particularly intensified? You talk about being a learning process and learning more about your culture. Do you, is there a particular point where that intensified? I guess, yeah, from a creating perspective, we were lucky enough in the Tri-Series early last year, we wore an Indigenous strip the Australian team, and that was the first ever time a national um, Australian team had worn that, and it was absolute honour to to be able to wear that. It was, um, yeah, really special. And I think another time we've been doing barefoot circles um, mm. for a cricket, so it's a obviously cricket-centric way for us to to get grounded and to get connected to to the ground that we're on, and um, to pay our respects to to that land and to have someone either. Ign- acknowledge the country that we're on or to, um, yeah, it's just something that has been so special for Mm. us to be able to do as cricketers. And um, it's also something that people have really enjoyed as well because it's, yeah, they're paying their respects to to the people that were there first. You did that particularly in this WBBL season, um, which was fantastic to see. A lot of the other teams decided to take a knee um, off the back of what we've seen in 2020, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement. You didn't want your you didn't want to take a knee, nor your team to take a knee. Can you explain that decision? Yeah, it was um, at the start of the tournament. All captains and leaders had agreed to do the barefoot circle, and that was honouring 
the people, the First Nations people in Australia. And then I think it was the day before the comp was supposed to start, um, I had Meg Lanning text me. She's like, oh, I have a bit of an issue. And I'm like, okay, great. What is it? So then we met up down in the lobby and she's like, um, people want to take a knee. And I was like, okay. So I was a bit flustered because I was like, well, that's not something, obviously I stand up against racism. It's mm-hmm. not that at all. And I think most decent humans do as well. But the whole taking a knee is very American. It's very political. And I don't think people quite understand what it's about and why they take a, take a knee during the anthem um, is because it's going against institutionalised racism. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's why they do it through the anthem because it's all to do with the government and to, to the higher powers. And in saying that, I wasn't, there's two players, two South Africans um, in the Sixers team who are very religious and they said, we only take a knee for God. So we were like, okay, that's, that's totally fine. That's your belief. And we want to stand by our players. So we're not going to leave two people just standing there and the rest of us doing it or mm. vice versa. And I think people were worried that because they didn't want to do it, then I would want to do it like I wanted to do it. So they were like quite torn. And then once mm. they found out that I actually didn't want to do it, it was everyone came together collectively and, yeah, just just made that decision for us not to do it. And I think, I don't know, at, at, at the time talking to my mates within other sides who were doing it, I don't know, it, it almost seemed sometimes a little bit forced and those players felt a little bit uncomfortable doing it because they didn't know why they were doing it. They were just there to support their mm. teammates who wanted to do it, which I guess is a bit sad in in some regards mm. because they're playing in a domestic league here in Australia. They're acknowledging doing the barefoot circle. They're acknowledging the First Nations people here but also felt like they had to do that too. But it's interesting because mm. obviously people have very different opinions mm. on this stuff. But I guess my thinking came back to with, extensive conversations with people, um, especially my mum. And it was just, I don't know, it, it kind of came back to, okay, so you're going to take a knee, but are you going to go down to do a protest for Black Lives Matter? And at, I guess at the time I was like, this is quite tokenistic for you people mm-hmm. to be doing that because like you might've put a black tile on your Instagram, but like, mm-hmm. are you going to do anything about it? Like, mm-hmm. are you going to donate to a Black Lives Matter GoFundMe page or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the thing that frustrated me the most was, yeah, you're going to take a knee, but, like, what else are you doing? Like, how else are you helping the cause? I don't know. That's just what frustrated. symbolism in a yeah. way rather than a practical response. Exactly right. And I think that's what we made sure about doing the barefoot circle around the whole Black Lives Matter thing mm. was that that wasn't tokenistic and that we were actually agreeing to do this most games. I mm-hmm. think it was from NAIDOC week onwards we did it throughout NODOC week, every single game we played. And for the Australian team, we have made an agreement as players that we will do it every single, um, at the first game of every single tour. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's an agreement that we've made and we can publicly say that and we're happy to say that, that it's not tokenistic and it's something that we've agreed on because it's the right thing to do and it's, um, we're there to support the culture and we want to be seen sending those positive messages Mm -hmm. out to, to those people. At the start of 2021, um, the Prime Minister announced that there would be a word change in the anthem. Very divided opinions on that. Where do you stand on that word change? Oh, I don't know, to be honest. Like, I don't want to comment on it and just, yeah, make something out of it that probably doesn't need to be. I've seen so many, I follow quite a few, um, whether it's Aboriginal people or organisations on social media and a lot of people 
are very divided on it. Some mm-hmm. people are happy about it that there is a change, but they're not happy about the rest of the song. Like there's a lot of mm. the song that doesn't relate to Aboriginal people who were here first. Like it's very, mm. it's a very white song um, and it's a movement and it's a positive movement where the people like it. Like, and the, the issue is, and I was talking to my mum about it, you can't please everyone and mm. that's the hardest thing that there's always going to be people that want more or they want things changed and it's frustrating because it is a change and I guess it's a positive one in any circumstance. So kind of got to look at it that way. But like I said, you can't please everyone. There's always going to be someone that wants more. So yeah, it's a positive one, but there's probably a lot more that they could do too. Can I ask, have you yourself experienced racism and how have you experienced it? Probably through school. Um, that's probably when I copped a lot of it was just like, oh, you're getting freebies or it's because mm-hmm. you're Aboriginal and just stuff like that where kids like just don't understand mm. and um it's frustrating or like just comments like oh how much Aboriginal are you or how much percentage are you and that's and it's so frustrating because people still ask me to this day or oh, how much are you I'm like really? I'm Aboriginal like I don't if you're English I don't say how much percent English yeah. are you like you're yeah. just English and I've also had I was getting my makeup done for I was doing a shoot or something for mm. cricket and um, she's like, oh, like, you got beautiful olive skin. I'm like, oh, thank you. Um, she's like, oh, like, like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm Aboriginal. And she's like, oh, you don't look Aboriginal. And I was oh. just like, <laughs> and I just had to bite my tongue because I was just like, if I say anything, like, I'll probably get in trouble because I'll say the wrong thing and I'll just have an outburst. But and I don't know, like, and she just, so tired. And she mm. just kept digging herself and I was just like, oh, well, I am Aboriginal. She's like, oh, like, and I was just thinking in my head, just please stop talking. Yeah. And like when I got out of the makeup room <laughs> and I, I like <sighs> said to one of my mates, I'm like, like you should have just heard what she said. She's like, oh, did you say anything? I was like, I, I can't say anything because I'll blow. Like I just mm. will go off every time I've, I've seen that makeup artist. I'm like, she can't do my makeup. Yeah. I'll actually lose it if, yeah, if, yeah, if she yeah. comes to me type thing. But um, It would sting. I can understand how that would sting. It's just like, and that's what it comes back to, like those little comments. And not understanding that that's. Just not understanding that that has an effect on me. Mm. Like, of course it does, but people just, ignorance is bliss sometimes, isn't it? Like, you just, oh, well, it doesn't affect me, so it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know. It just gets frustrating. You have started your own foundation just recently. Tell me more about that. I'd had this vision probably would have been late 2019 now. I was like, I would just love to, just to be able to give back. And I didn't know in what capacity I could do that. And then because of COVID, um, my PDM, so like our welfare play development manager for Mm -hmm. Cricket New South Wales, um, put me or signed me up to this business course. Um, And I was a bit annoyed about it. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this business course. It was was like a six-week business course. It it wasn't hard. Um, And one of the questions was around, have you ever thought about starting your own business? And I was like to her, like, I haven't thought about starting my own business, but I've thought about starting my own foundation. She's like, well, why haven't you? And I was like... Uh, because I don't know anyone that's done it before. Like I've had no one to to help me with it. Mm. And she's like, okay, great. Like this is fantastic. So she helped me. And then we ended up sitting down with one of her friends who had had successful businesses and we just worked out the wording around mm-hmm. things and I guess the values that align with me and what the values I, I want to align with the foundation mm-hmm. for for one day employing people and them aligning with those two. Um it's called cool. Ashley Gardner Foundation. Um, <laughs> great title. Because I didn't know anything else to call it. <laughs> it's a great title. 
that was the easiest thing. And it's basically there to empower the Aboriginal community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's through sport, the arts um, and education. Mm-hmm. So not just cricket. Not just cricket. Yeah. Because education is the most important. Like mm. obviously I'm in the privileged position I am because of cricket, mm-hmm. but I wish I paid more attention at school. Yeah. So making sure that that's um, something that's really important for those kids and basically what the foundation will be doing is um, when we start up, hopefully 2022, we'll be going to regional areas in New South Wales, to schools and providing a breakfast club because I think the most important thing for kids is to have a healthy lifestyle and um, to be given the opportunity to healthy food and we're going to be going to areas that have really high population of Aboriginal kids to hopefully have a bigger impact um, Mm. in that regard and some of those kids come from not nice households and things like that and I want to be given or give those kids opportunities for a positive outlook at school and make them understand that school is a safe space mm. and, and school somewhere you, you want to be and actually really encourage them to go to school and to get a really good education. So the idea is to bookend the week, Monday and Friday, mm-hmm. um, to hopefully get them to go to school Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> um, and it's basically because the rates of Aboriginal kids finishing school or high school is very low. Mm. So we thought we should try and, I guess, target primary school kids for them to have that positive outlook for them to want to go to high school. So that's basically the aim um, is to to give them that breakfast, um, to give them a healthy um, start to the day and just to make sure that their bellies are full because kids don't pay attention in, in class if they're hungry because yeah. they're, not, they're not concentrating but also give them them the opportunity to um, put snacks in their bag or to make a sandwich before school Mm. in case they don't have recess or lunch. Um, So making sure that they're full throughout the day and have food throughout the day. Um, And then relating it back to um, sport and Mm -hmm. um, art, which is what I took up through COVID as well. Um, We're going to be providing like a sporting equipment or sporting kit full of all different types of um, equipment for those kids to have at their school. and then giving them about 45 minutes before school starts um, to have free time and, and to have free play and, and cool. unstructured because I feel young kids are always told what to do at school, like mm. you're doing this sport today, so that's what you're doing. Mm. Where giving them unstructured time, that's when they'll be having the most fun is yeah. they can literally run a mark for 40 minutes and then come back and, and pack up and, and do that kind of stuff. But also making sure that I'm tailoring it for creative kids who, because not every kid's sporty, we, everyone knows that. Mm. And um, so giving them the opportunity to paint or to draw, to colour in, whatever that mm. is. And then so relating that back to, to the arts. And obviously the education piece, it's getting the kids to school. And that will hopefully then um, lead into to them paying attention in class and actually yeah, edu- getting educated. Kudos to you, Ash. I saw on your Instagram as well that you met up with, um, with Adam Goods. Just um, when you were setting up your foundation, he must have been an inspiration or what, what was that meeting all about? Yeah, that was um, awesome. It's something that um, I'll always cherish. He was obviously someone that I looked up to from a sporting perspective. Um, he obviously copped a lot of backlash mm. through the back end of um, his career, which is really sad because he was probably one of the best AFL players that we've ever seen here yeah. in Australia. So for him to go through that stuff and then to still want to give back um, is pretty inspirational. and. Mm. Um, yeah, we met up and I was so nervous to meet him. Really? <laughs> yeah, I just, I didn't know what to say. I just was like this nervous bloody 
ball of energy. Like I just didn't know what to do. And, he has an um, aura, doesn't he? He does, him. and he's so softly spoken mm. and just so precise in his Such a in the way. Yeah, he absolutely has his presence about him. And we were just talking all things about foundations, mm. um, sport, life, whatever um, kind of came up that was on topic. But he just said to be really good at cricket and then focus on the other things. Because when I'm really good at cricket, that's when I'll be performing. That's when my name will get out there. And that's when those things will come along as well. Mm. So he said, don't forget about your sport because that's the first thing. Um, he obviously started the foundation with Mickey O'Loughlin mm-hmm. after he'd finished where I'm doing it while I'm still playing. Yeah. So there's a bit more on my plate, but I guess that's what keeps me grounded as well is there's so many other things to life than cricket. So mm. I, I have that foundation to fall back on mm. um, and to think about that stuff rather than getting all caught up in my sport. I want to talk to you just quickly about your concussions and the issues that you've had with concussions. You suffered quite a few in, in your career. Is that something that that concerns you moving forward at all? Yes and no. Like it's something, I don't know, like people probably don't put concussion and cricket together or they're like, oh, you wear a helmet, like you should be fine. And it's so frustrating because it's like it is avoidable in most circumstances. Mm. But like my most recent one through the Big Bash, um, my head didn't even hit the ground. Mm. I dived. um, I was running pretty quickly and I like dived um, Mm. at a pretty decent pace and like just the neck jar that I mm. threw my head back gave me a concussion. And it's 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 so frustrating because, like, I've been hit in the head quite a few times. I think that was, like, my eighth concussion or seventh mm. concussion. So there's been a few. Um, and I guess it's always something in cricket. You know that they're going to bowl short, they're going to bowl bounces, mm. and it's a part of the game. And just because I've had concussion history doesn't mean they're not allowed to do it. Like, mm. it's it's – it's a part of the game and if that was to change, I wouldn't want to play because it's it just takes a takes away from that. Mm. I don't know. Like I, I saw a neurologist, it would have been probably two years ago now. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was 21 at the time and she basically said to me, like, you need to consider whether you want to keep playing. And I was like, I'm 21. Mm. Like I've yeah. only just started playing cricket for Australia. Like that's the dumbest question I think I've ever been asked. Yeah. Um, and it kind of rocked me a little bit because I was like, well, like why is she saying that? Like mm. is, is there really um, – is it a big issue? Mm. Um, and I'm very glad that my mum was in the room at the time and so was my physio, mm-hmm. um, the Australian physio at the time. So I had people there to kind of be like, like, did she really just say that type mm. thing? Um, and after the last one, I've been and done concussion tests. I've done mm. all different types of neck strength stuff and that's not the issue. Um, mm. Like I don't actually know what the issue is, probably because my brain's too small and it just rattles around in my head. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like it's it's something that, is there and it's mm. it's cricket. People get hit in the head and um, is there the enough research the into concussions in, in cricket? They've done a lot of research into it. I think I don't know whether it's the helmets we wear because they're quite hollow. Like your mm. your head's always going to rattle, mm. and it's almost like the shock of because it's quite loud when mm. the ball does hit your helmet, um, and that probably shocks you a little bit as well, and mm. um, probably over exaggerates things a little bit. But it's quite a weird feeling. Like I can understand like rugby league players are more conditioned to their neck being thrown around and their head being thrown around and their head hitting the ground Mm. where we don't get conditioned for that. We Mm. play a non-contact sport. So when 120K ball is coming at your head and and it hits you, like it's it's a little bit scary. Mm. Um, But there has been a lot of research. Obviously we wear the stem guards. Not every player does, but I obviously have to wear them. So things like that are happening, but 
like, I don't really know how these things can change. Like we've seen Will Pukowski, mm-hmm. who actually made his debut today for Australia, mm-hmm. which is so awesome to see. Mm-hmm. But he, I think that was his ninth concussion mm-hmm. and he had to take a lot of time out from the sport mm-hmm. because not physically but mentally, like it almost has a scar on you because I, I remember might have been after like the fourth one that I had, mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back into the nets and face fast bowling again because mm-hmm. I was just worried that, they were going to bowl bounces at me and I was too scared to go in there. Mm. And it's it's that mental barrier that you've got to overcome to to want to do those things mm. again and to actually love the game again because I didn't want to be playing cricket. I was like, oh, like, like what if it happens again? Like, mm. I could be out for months. Mm. So it's something that you've always got to, I guess, keep in the back of your mind, but it's also something that can spur you on for it not to happen and, mm. and to play um, those shots really positively and stuff like that. So whether it's, yeah, it's it's always there, but you got to try and not keep it at the front of your mind. Just keep it at the back, knowing that there's a potential that it can happen again. Do you worry about long term impacts of concussions? From what you've been told, I guess so. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard because there's obviously so many different differing opinions. Mm. I have so many physios that have said stuff. I've had doctors, um, and I think from a personal perspective, that's what they're worried about: is they don't want it to have. Um, a lasting impact later in my life Mm. and um, because I'm only so young and I've had so many I guess it's something that they do worry about if Mm. I was to have more in the future which touch wood hopefully I don't but Mm. it's almost inevitable like people are going to bowl short I'm going to dive on the boundary I'm going to be fielding like I can get hit in the head like um, like these things yeah like these things happen and I'll do my best to avoid them but Mm. sometimes like things happen and and you can't control them so yeah, it's obviously something that probably after I finish cricket, I probably need to have a pretty good look at. Mm. But um, for now, it's something that I'm not really going to think about too much. That you just manage as it comes up. Trying to do my best. Um, it's hard to believe it's almost been a year since March 8, 2020, and that World Cup win. Does it still give you goosebumps? Absolutely. I think it's going to be a day that I'll remember for the rest of my <laughs> life. Um, it was such a long day it was we were just waiting and waiting and we we're just like come on like can we just go to the ground already like we just want to play this game yeah um and we got to the ground and I walked because it was hard work getting there oh, like wasn't don't it? even let's not even it talk was like about a the semi coaster. <laughs> I know the whole the whole world cup lost the first game oh. very rocky the second game and then we smashed the third game and then obviously the last game we had to win to get to the semis and we ended up beating New Zealand which was a fantastic game mm. and then the semi-final here in Sydney, it was raining Rain. and the gods were just looking over us how and somehow. A break? If you looked at that weather map, it was I don't know just how got on. like red and purple all over, like for, for heavy rain. And yeah. then, more Ridiculous. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like so cool. It's just like everything aligned. like Didn't it? Beautifully. Cricket Australia put so much money into to get it out there mm. and to get 86,000 people to the yeah. MCG. Like we were joking feel around. Yeah, feel the G. Like we were always like, no, like it's, it's not going to happen. Like there'll be 40,000 people there and, and that'll be it. Like that was legit really? what everyone was saying. No. We yeah. And once we won that semi final, we were sitting in the SCG change rooms, which is an absolute honour as it is mm. because there's so much history behind mm. it. But we're all just joking like, let's feel the G. Like just, <laughs> just being silly. And we're like, we're actually going to the MCG to play in a World Cup final on Australian mm. soil, like, this couldn't get any better. We finally got to the ground and I walked out to warm up and there was just so many people in the crowd. I'm like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and the ground announcer 
must have said like something about Australia and the crowd just went nuts. And I was like, are you serious? Like, is this really <laughs> happening? Like, how have we done this? And it was so amazing that the Australian community and the Indian community got behind mm. women's sport mm. and 86,000 people were there supporting female athletes and it was just amazing. Like from a sporting perspective mm. here in Australia, let alone cricket, but just for females that there is that potential for for that backing. It can again. happen. Exactly right. You can feel the G. You just can feel the G. Just people <laughs> believing that you can feel the G, not thinking that women's sports won't. Exactly. Like there's women's, it's quite amazing. Like women's sport really isn't that different to to men's sport. Mm. Like you think about cricket, we still make big scores. We still hit sixes, mm. still hit fours. Like you're still doing these amazing things. They're still taking fantastic catches. Like mm. there's nothing that the men are doing that we aren't. Mm. Like, yes, we don't bowl as fast or hit the ball as far, but we're still doing those things. So like it's amazing that after that World Cup how much – bigger it's gotten and it's so exciting. Mm. Um, it probably helps that we, that we won. And regardless, <laughs> people want to see female players and want to see little girls want to see female players out there, little boys too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so funny. Like I've spoken to so many people that are like, I prefer watching female cricket than men's. Me, 100%. Like everyone's like, oh, the females <laughs> are so much better to watch. Like it's always a better contest, rah, rah, rah. And mm. I'm like, that's great. Like, I don't know whether you're saying that because you know me and that's no. what I want to hear. Or... My little three-and-a-half-year-old notices when the women aren't playing footy. So we turn the footy on and she's like, where's where's a girl's footy, she yeah. calls it. Or we put on the cricket and she's like, the girl's playing? And I, I think it's such a beautiful thing. Like, she notices, but she's now being exposed to both. So that has a big – and she just wants to watch the girls. She yeah. doesn't care about the boys. She wants to watch the girls. It's awesome. Like, when you go to the ground, girls and boys coming up to you and, like, just being so excited to mm. be there and just loving that they're at the cricket. And, like, that's the best thing. I think young boys now mm-hmm. don't care that it's girls or boys. No. It's just sport and that's the best thing. That they've got athlete. idols that are females as mm. well. And I don't think 10, 15 years ago, any young boy growing up would have had a female as an idol that no. would be like, no, like I have to follow the boys. But they don't see gender. So you can imagine 10 to 15 years now, if they're not seeing gender for their elite idols now, can you imagine in 10, 15 years what it'll be like exactly. in society yeah. when you have these Amazing. little boys? <laughs> um, Katy Perry, were you up there dancing? I've gone back oh. through all the footage. I'm trying to find you. I'm trying to look for you. <laughs> I think do, um, dancing is a very loose term for what I was doing on stage. I was just, I think I was in shock. And, like, I, mean, I had a little bit of liquid courage, but I wasn't, like, I wasn't doing what Sophie Molyneux was doing, strutting, <laughs> yeah, down, awesome. the, strutting down the middle. And props to her. Like, she was probably going to be, her and Molly Strano were probably going to be the only two that would ever have the courage to do that. And doing the work so as well fantastic. on stage. Like, yep. She was in an absolute element and it was <laughs> the best thing to see. And like when you look back at that footage, we just look like we're having the best time. Like you're in a, we just won a World Cup and we're with an absolute superstar. Like whoever thought we'd be with Katy Perry. Like, How cool is it that Katy Perry did like wanted you guys there as well? She wasn't too cool to have you guys there. She's a superstar. You girls are superstars. But she was like, come on, share my stage. It was, share my song. I know. It was like... <laughs> Like, so amazing. We were down in the change rooms. Um, our families hadn't come in yet, but we were down there and the security guy came in. He's like, oh, there's, like, a possibility that you could go on stage. And we're like, all right, like, we're going. So we all ran out. how did that come the, about? Like, did Katie say it was okay? It or? must have been her management must have asked her after a song or something and she was 
like all for it. So then our, so cool. our only rule when we got on stage was not to jump because it was like not a collapsible stage, right. but like it yeah. wasn't sturdy and there was 15 of us and yeah. there was a pregnant woman I was on about stage. to say, and Katy Perry was pregnant yeah. at the time. Yeah. So we were all up there and like you, you see the footage and then I think it was, yeah, it was firework that we were all singing <laughs> and then like the beat hit and everyone jumped and I was just like, did <laughs> no. we really just do that? Like but it was obviously fine. And then I saw the opportunity right at the end when she was finishing to take a selfie. <laughs> so then it was like her and everyone in it. It was yeah, so cool. It was one of the best things that's probably ever happened in my life to be yeah. honest it was pretty cool I want to ask you um how long you stayed at the MCG after all the fans left what <laughs> happened after that because we know all about the stage we've seen it it's amazing yeah what happened afterwards um so we after we got off stage we went back down to the change rooms and we had all our families in there family mm. and friends so there was it was crowded and the MCG <laughs> change rooms are huge as well. So, um, but that was awesome to share our celebrations mm. with them because they're the people that have been there from the start mm. and it was awesome to share that. So we were probably, I think the families left around 12 mm-hmm. um, and then it's almost like an Australian thing after or when you're able to, you go out onto the pitch and almost mm-hmm. have like a pitch party. So we were out on the MCG pitch, <laughs> 1am and it was just it was so awesome because everyone was so cheery. Everyone was so happy. Um, we were just having a great time. And I think we ended up leaving the MCG about 2 a.m. Yeah. Um, and then a few of us kicked on. But um, <laughs> there's a few people that needed the rest. And, um, yeah, it was just so awesome to be able to celebrate with the girls. Very, very, very cool. Incredible, incredible memories. Um, we finished each podcast, um, Ash, by asking our guests what advice they would give their younger self. What advice would you give that young little Ash? Just to enjoy the little moments um, and to celebrate the small wins. I know being a cricketer, like I've mentioned, there's more bad days than good and sometimes you need to celebrate those little successes and um, those little milestones that you, that you do hit and probably when you're 10 years old, um, you don't think about that stuff and um, I think about just really enjoying the game and having a smile on your face because... When you're enjoying it, you're playing your best um, and you're having fun and that's when you want to be around your teammates and stuff like that. So um, that's definitely something that I would tell my 10-year-old self. It's a good metaphor for life in general, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ash, you're a superstar, you're a role model, you're an incredible woman. Thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. Thanks for having me. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.